Please stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read from Exodus 12, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in the fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Together as a body, our church is reading through the Bible this year. And we're all on a reading plan together, and we've read so far this year Genesis, and we're uh, midway through Exodus, the book of Exodus. And, and as we read that together, we're also reading a psalm a day. That's part of the reading plan. So today's the 24th, and we're reading Psalm 24 today. We've read 24 psalms together. And we're not just reading those. We're turning that into a time of prayer and praying the psalms uh, together, praying the Word of God. And so this is very important, and to encourage that, I'm preaching out of where we're reading. I'm keeping us along in the story. And so today... I'll be preaching about the Passover, the Passover lamb, the theme of the lamb throughout Scripture. One of the things I've been trying to do is tie one of the stories that we're reading in with the larger context of the Bible, so putting it in its place about where that story goes on to tell us. So today we're talking about a little fluffy lamb a little bit of that and what that has to do with the story of God. <clears throat> so I kind of titled this uh, The Final Plague. So if you're familiar, there were ten plagues, and this is the final one. And it's a judgment upon the firstborn. And in this story, 
that we read just today out of Exodus 12, we see that um, there will either be the death of a lamb or the death of a firstborn son. And so this is what we have so far. I'm going to do some review of the story, try to catch us up with the story, kind of where we're at in the story. And then we're going to try to apply that to the hope that's within the Lamb of God. So we're going to look at the firstborn and the Lamb and compare and contrast those things that are going on and try to connect them to the larger story in the Bible. So to do that, I want to say that in Genesis, God has made this covenant with Abraham. It's passed to Isaac. It's passed to Jacob. And so, in Genesis, we have this favored son that comes from Jacob, and his name is Joseph, and he has 11 brothers. They sell him into slavery, into Egypt. So that's how Joseph ends up down there. And about a third of the context of Genesis is about the story of Joseph. Very interesting, and we looked at that last week the story of Joseph, and that's how they end up down in Egypt. And the story is very interesting. It's very engaging. The, the conclusion in Genesis 49 and 50 is that the brothers did mean that to, uh, as evil toward Joseph, but God meant it for good to cause the salvation, the saving of many families, and especially the family and many peoples, but especially the descendants of Jacob. So when Exodus begins, you have Jacob, you know, has died in the end of Genesis. And as Exodus begins, you have now Joseph dying, all of his brothers dying, and you have them multiplying in this fertile uh, place in the land of Goshen along the uh, Nile where they can plant and grow and crops and everything's going really great. The Pharaoh had loved Joseph and the story's going great. But as Exodus opens, these new pharaohs that have risen no longer remember Joseph. They no longer remember that story. And what we see that, even though the people are multiplying, we see this in Exodus 12, not within the text that we read, but a little bit later as the people of Israel are led out, that it mentions that there are 6,000, 600,000 men on foot, Exodus 12, 37. So you see Israel has gone from a family of of 70 and multiplied to this many people, which is, wouldn't you say, multiplying exceedingly? They've multiplied there. That's what God wanted them to do. They're very fruitful in the beginning of Exodus 1, and they've multiplied exceedingly fruitful and multiplied in Egypt. But this Pharaoh um, is not in their favor, and he fears their multiplication and how large of a family they are becoming. And in Exodus 12, also beyond our text today that we read in verse 40, it said the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So this is how much time has passed. So getting an idea of, well, yeah, they multiplied, and as it grew exponentially, they were there for 430 years. So the Bible covers a large amount of time in just just a few verses And so you have to be kind of aware of that and what's going on. This fits perfectly into the story 
of what God had promised Abraham back in Genesis 15. And I know I refer to that text a lot, but it is a prophecy that is throughout all of Scripture and ties in firstborn and, and, and sacrifice and covenant and all these things that are the bigger themes of the, of the Bible is this covenant that God made with Abram at the time. And so in Genesis 15, 13, I want you to listen to these words and see if you can kind of put this together in your own mind. It's a story of what's happening now in the Exodus and this time period that has passed and how they've multiplied and all these things. Genesis 15, 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants or slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Does that ring some bells? 400, you know, way years before this, before they were even in Egypt. Way more years than that. Uh, God is saying this is what will happen of Abraham's descendants. Pretty Pretty phenomenal, isn't it? God has a whole sovereign plan that he's working out uh, amidst uh, the affairs that are going on with the, the, the men on earth, his, the humanity growing and multiplying. He's telling his story through Abraham and his descendants, specifically the descendants from Isaac, specifically from the descendants from Isaac to Jacob, and telling this story of God, and we see it through Joseph and now the people of Israel in Egypt. God has done what he said back there in Genesis 15 to Abraham, and now he's bringing judgment on Egypt, and we've been, been able to see that judgment coming upon Egypt. We've seen the plagues coming on the nation of, of Egypt. We've seen those judgments coming down, uh, the water turning to blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the livestock, the pestilence, the boils, the hail, the locust, darkness. And now this final tenth plague in our text today is something beyond all the other texts. It's beyond all the other plagues. It's personal. It involves death. And it's going after each family in all of Egypt. And it's the killing of the firstborn, the final judgment has to do with the death of the firstborn. And it also is intertwined with the death. The only hope in the story is in the substitutionary sacrifice of the death of a lamb. So it's either the death of the firstborn or the death of the lamb. So we need to understand a little bit about the narrative of the lamb and the narrative of the firstborn. We won't be able to do that all exclusively, but hopefully maybe if you're interested, you could do some more study yourself. But in Exodus, um, we have seen that in, in chapter 2 that God heard the groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham. It's tied in with Abraham. He hears God. I want you to just see in a little more review of the story that God saw in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, and God knew. Isn't that important? God hears your groanings. He hears your cries. He remembers his covenant, his promise towards you. God sees and he knows. I just love that in the, in the, as the story goes. He hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. He sees the people 
He sees his people, Israel, and it says, and God knew. In another place in the next chapter of Exodus 3, 7 through 8, it says that God has seen, he says, I've seen the affliction of my people, and I am coming down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to the land, to a good place, a good and broad land. God sees and he knows, and he knows their sufferings, and God sees and knows our suffering. God is not a distant and uncaring God. I always think of the trying to gather around the table and sitting around the table, and if you're blessed and you have a mother and father there and you're trying to talk over breakfast or something, and the father, you know, has his face covered behind the newspaper, just you know, a lot of times people see God that way, that he's this distant and uncaring God. You're at the table maybe, but he's not connected with you or interested in your life and story, but God is. He's, he's a God that knows and sees their suffering, and as we see the story growing through Exodus into chapter 2 and 3 and leaping into some other text. We have this confrontation with Pharaoh in Exodus 5, and this is the question being asked as Moses comes and says, you know, let my people go that we may go and worship God. He says, who is the Lord? As he says, he's the, the Lord God Almighty, but he's asking this question, Pharaoh, well, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? He says, I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And this is the question in our world today. Who's the Lord compared to um, Buddha, Muhammad, or the other gods? Who is he? What's so special about him? Why should I let these people go? And there's this conflict between God, the true and living God, and the gods of Egypt. And the God that Moses is representing to Pharaoh. And that's the question that's happening here. It's Pharaoh saying, who's the Lord? How is he different from all the other gods? Why should I obey him? These are questions that are going on. Pharaoh's heart's much like the heart of our world, much like our own hearts, asking these questions. But God is doing all this and working sovereignly uh, through Pharaoh, through their leaders, and this conflict with the leaders of Moses and Aaron representing Israel. And God is saying in Exodus 7, that even the Egyptians shall know, 7-5, that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And in Exodus 8-10, he says uh, that they may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. That's what these plagues are about, to distinguish that there is no one like the Lord God. And in Exodus 9, it says, there is none like me in all the earth, says God. And he says in verse 16 of Exodus 9, But for this purpose I have raised you up. He's talking about Pharaoh. He's saying to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, this story that ends up happening here doesn't just stay within, contained within Egypt. Man, you want to talk about a story spreading. It didn't just stay within Egypt. This spread throughout all the land of what God was doing through these slaves that were enslaved to the most powerful nation on earth, the most powerful empire, some people say, the most powerful empire that has ever existed in the world. It ruled and reigned over everything. And these, these people were just slaves, and yet God was doing. Who is this God of the Hebrews? That's the word that went out. Who is the Lord? The answer came. Somebody very to be feared of his power. He reigns in power. 
And that's the word that went out. That was the cause. If they would have just gone up and said, hey, let my people go. Okay, nah, I don't really want to. Uh, well, look, my, you know, my staff could turn a snake. And uh, okay, that's enough, man. Let them go. Who would have heard about that? Maybe nobody. But God is purposely working through all these plagues and even the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And the Bible even comments this. Paul in Romans 9 actually quotes this uh, scripture in Exodus 9. And he says that I might show my power to you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The scripture that I just read uh, from Exodus 9, Paul quotes and he says, So then God may have mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the sovereign power of God doing what he wills to work out his plan for his glory. And it's working perfectly according to his plan. We might not understand all that, but we're his creation and we submit to his word and what he says. And so Exodus 11, this final plague becomes... Comes, uh, uh, the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 11.1, 1, yet one more plague, one plague more. And so we have God doing this through this whole story. He's revealing who he is, that he is the Lord Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's revealing his, his name to Moses. Moses is now the new leader, and he is the, the, the new deliverer that God has chosen sovereignly to lead his people out of Egypt. And he shows his sovereign power through Moses to Pharaoh, to the, the greatest empire of that day. And we know that God, through what he does, he's a glorious God, that he's magnifying his glory in all the earth so that not only Egypt and Israel will know, but the whole world will hear that he is the God above all gods and like no other. And this continued throughout all of history, the, the, the establishment of the Passover and what happens at the Passover and the fat Passover uh, feast is still celebrated to this day and the Passover is, is pointing towards the Last Supper uh, that Jesus had with his disciples. And that's kind of where we're going from the Passover lamb to the Passover Jesus who is still instituting and when we celebrate communion i know we just have it in these little cups but this is our passover feast this is our our passover now is in this lamb that was slain and that's what exodus where we get into our text today said exodus 12 3 said tell all the congregation of israel that on the 10th day of this month every man shall take a lamb it's a story about a lamb your lamb shall be without blemish that's a very important phrase. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Like, welcome it in, take care of it. This is the, the lamb that you've selected, but what will you do? When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They all went out and killed this lamb together at a specific time on a specific day to do this, and it was appointed by God to do that. In Exodus 12, 12, at the end of our text today, we see what God's doing. He says, on that same night, so this is the night that the Israelis are, are, are slaughtering this lamb that they've had for these days, and they're taking it out at twilight to do this. 
It says on, in verse 12 in our text, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now remember, Israel is in Egypt. God is striking Egypt. And so this judgment isn't just coming, this final judgment, just upon the Egyptians, but upon Egypt, upon this nation. And Israel is intertwined with that nation. So this plague of death to every firstborn, of both people and animals, the people of Israel are there, and they're in danger also. And so in Exodus 12, outside of our text, in verse 23, God reminds them of this, and he says, For the Lord will pass through to strike, and here he says, the Egyptians. His goal is to just strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, that's the top part of the house by the door, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. They're under danger, right? That blood isn't there. He enters those houses and strikes them too. They're in Egypt. So in this, we see that this destroyer is passing over one place, which is in Egypt. It's located judgments falling on this nation. On one night, this final plague, to kill every firstborn in every house unless he sees the blood of the Lamb. We must then understand something about the firstborn, what God's doing, and something about the Lamb. To understand something about the Lamb, we can look at its first mention in Genesis 22. First mention of the sacrifice is mentioned to Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah have finally had their firstborn son together. And this is the son of promise that God is telling the story through. It's through Isaac, the son of their very, very, very old age. Impossible to have kids. Not only uh, was Sarah barren in her young age, now they're beyond even the capacity to have children. And God does this miracle and brings forth, forth this birth of Isaac. And then God asks him to sacrifice his firstborn son. And so people not only see the, the maybe are confounded by what God's doing in Egypt, but they're confounded by this first story. They might see it as a monstrous command. What, why would God ask the Lord to sacrifice Isaac? This is horrible. I don't want to have anything to do with the Bible. And looking at this, we have to understand about the culture. Why do we react that way? What is it about our time and place why we do react that way, and why didn't Abraham react that way in his time and culture? And we have to try to understand something about the text and the time and what God is doing throughout the Bible and how he's telling the story. It's hard to explain all this and to understand all the cultural narratives in our own minds and what all the cultural narratives were in the mind of Abraham and how this story relates and to do it in five minutes or less.
(laughs) But here's what I will say. Western culture, the culture you live in right now, today, especially American culture, is the most radically individualistic culture that has ever existed throughout all of time. You might not know that, that you are a product of your culture. And your culture very specifically has told you that everything that matters, matters to the individual. But that was not the culture. It's not even still the culture today in most other societies. But it was definitely, definitely not the culture in Abraham's time. In Abraham's time, everything that mattered was family. Everything that mattered was the whole and society and your connection as a family to the culture around you. That's what mattered. That was the only way you were going to prosper, not just individualistic rising to the top and worshiping an individual. But it was a family rising to the top. It was about how a family rises and about how that family connected to the broader culture helps the whole culture rise. And that's how peoples rose. And that was definitely the culture back then between opposing tribes, but specifically within the tribe that God was raising up Through Abraham, they were interconnected through this family, through these tribes, through these brothers that were multiplying, that God had supernaturally put together and made a people. So the firstborn was very important. The firstborn in that culture was the one who got the blessing of the whole estate or the largest portion of it. It was a law of primogeniture that still exists today, and it states that it is the right of the firstborn by law or custom to be the legitimate child to inherit the parent's entire or main estate. And this is still around, and it was real around in the culture, especially then. But biblically, as we get further into the story, and I'm not going to be able to touch on each one of these texts, but in Exodus 22, Numbers 3, and Numbers 8, if you're taking notes, write those down and go read those chapters. Exodus 22, Numbers 3, and Numbers 8. You see this very uh, in-depth explanation where God is calling out his claim upon the firstborn. Because the firstborn represents the debt to the whole family. And if we don't understand something about what's going on here about the firstborn, we don't really get it, what's happening in the story and this final plague upon Egypt. But Exodus twenty two twenty nine, God says, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. He, he had a special claim on the firstborn to, to claim them for the debt of sin that was on the earth. And that represented the whole family, so that, that sin was upon the whole family, yes. But the firstborn was the focal point of both the blessing to the family and accepting the responsibility to the family. And in Numbers 3, God goes into this whole story about the Levites. And he says, I am the Lord, and I will claim the Levites out of Israel for myself instead of all the firstborn. So you see what's happening here is this debt that God says you owe me. I will claim not upon the firstborn, but but by the Levites. So the tribe of Levites is called out. And in Numbers 3, he goes on to say that there wasn't enough Levites to pay this firstborn debt. And so, to pay the full redemption price, you actually hear this word of redemption. God says, if I can't redeem enough Levites, 
uh, for the replacement of each firstborn son in all the tribes of Israel, then there shall be payment made. And in verse 50 of Numbers 3, he says, For the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took this money, this payment had to be made for the firstborn. And in Numbers 8, he continues the story. And he's saying that the firstborn is forfeit to me unless you pay the debt and redeem them. He's saying there's a debt, and I know that's not popular in our society today. And it's even less more unpopular that somebody else can pay that debt for us. In our individualistic society, it's you pay the debt. That's them. Oh, yeah, they might be a part of my family, but we separate them out. Say, let judgment fall upon them for their wrongdoings. But in this society, it wasn't that way. There was a responsibility for everyone in your family. And what fell upon them fell upon you. What fell upon another family was to fall upon your family. There was a very more balanced understanding of how culture and family and both the blessing and the cursing fell upon everybody. And so in Abraham's day, he understands this. And though he struggles with, I hope that it's not Isaac. I hope it's not my firstborn son. Me and Sarah, this Sarah, you know, and this promised son. I hope, God, you provide for yourself a lamb. But Isaac says, says these words as they begin to go up uh, the mountain. He says, there's the, the fire. There's the wood. There's the knife. Father, where's the lamb? Isaac is, that's the question. Who is this? God, that I should obey him. And Isaac is saying, where's the lamb? So it's understanding. Isaac understands as a little boy going up this mountain about sacrifice, about the firstborn, about where is the lamb. The story of the lamb is there. It's in their culture. It's in their understanding. And yet we see, too, also this judgment that is falling, this judgment that is falling, this egalitarianism judgment it's 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 a doctrine it says that all have sinned and there's none righteous no not one so even though israel is being oppressed in egypt the egyptians are the oppressor even though the egyptians are worshiping idols and israel is worshiping the true and living god you see that the destroyer's coming and when all men are measured before god they are fallen short and that destroyer will enter and kill the representative of each family and demand payment and judgment upon the whole people of the people of the Egyptians and upon Israel unless he sees the blood on those doorposts. And the only hope is spiritual substitution. It's substitutionism. It is that this lamb must be substituted for the people of Israel to be spared from the destroyer entering their house in each house. If he doesn't see the blood, he'll enter. In Exodus 12, past our text, it says that that's what happened. Verses 29 through 30, it says at midnight, the Lord struck down. Think of the force of this. Just all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, so it doesn't matter how rich you are, all the way from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat at his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. If you were in jail in the dungeon, you were firstborn, you were struck down. All the firstborn of the livestock, down to the animals. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. 
None of these other plagues. None of these other nine. Because see, their culture was family. Their culture was firstborn. All their hopes and blessings were on this one. He represented the hopes of their gods to the world and to the nation and everything. And that, all that hope was taken from them and their firstborn. They let out a cry that would be hard for us to understand of, of within the culture and understanding of the, of the defeat of what they believed. And it was overwhelming. And it says that there's not been a cry like that since. That's a big cry. It's a big cry out. So the story is saying, who's going to be dead? I know that's a little morbid. But in this it is, there's either going to be a firstborn dead in each house, or there's going to be a dead lamb. Who will pay the debt of sin? John comes along in the New Testament and he gets this story. He gets family, he gets firstborn, he gets culture, and he looks at Jesus and he tells his disciples and all of his followers Behold the Lamb. Behold him, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who pays the debt for the whole world. Behold the Lamb. Not just look. I know NIV just says, takes the word behold and says just the look, but it's more than just look. It's more than just look and see. It's behold Him, grasp Him, take Him down, study Him, devour Him, eat Him, consume Him. Behold the Lamb. And Some people do, by mighty grace of God, their eyes are blown away and they look at the Lamb the story of the Lamb, the story of the Passover, the story of everything we've been looking for, this Messiah King, Son of God, would begin to understand and know as He's going to be the Lamb? Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Very few people get it. Very few people see it. John the Baptist cries out, and some do. The disciples get it in part. They start following Him, and they end up through this life and this time and this few-year period with Jesus, they come to this Passover meal, right? Remember the Passover meal and the end of Matthew chapter 26, the Passover meal, the end of Luke and Luke chapter 22. They get Jesus. They get the gathering. They get the Passover. They're all up there. They're gathered. And the presider, Jesus, is up there. He's like the Father. He's the head of the household. He's presiding, and his responsibility is to explain the meal. He's supposed to get up and say, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors suffered so we could be set free. Jesus doesn't say that. You guys know what Jesus says? This bread is my body. Think of the mind-blowing. Like, what, what story are you telling saying, I'm going to suffer. It's the bread of my affliction. I'm going to suffer in your place. I'm going to give you the ultimate freedom from oppression and captivity and sin and death itself. It's hard to imagine the shock of that, of a thousands of years old Passover feast. The disciples are looking going, what bread are you talking about? 
you being the bread, your body being the bread. And if that wasn't a big enough shock, they're looking around, and there's three main things always on the table, the bread, the wine, and the lamb, and there's no roasted lamb. But he picks up the cup. The wine is there. And he says, this cup is the blood. My blood shed for you. And they realize, and it begins to dawn on them in some measure we can only kind of guess. Because there's no lamb. What kind of Passover meal is this? As Rifle would say, where's the meat? There's no meat on the table. There's no lamb. There's no talk of a lamb. Can you imagine that shock? What is Jesus saying? What kind of Passover meal is this? Jesus is deliberately teaching and showing his disciples, I am the lamb. I am the firstborn son of my father who will die in your place. There's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Very specifically, he's the, he's the lamb. In John 19, John points out that when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Who cares? He's already dead anyway. Who cares that they break his legs? God does. To the story of the lamb in Exodus 12, later on from our text in, in verse 46 of Exodus 12, when God was further in detail explaining how they would eat this lamb, When they ate it, they would bring it inside their house. And he specifically said, uh, do not break any of the bones of this lamb. And John is saying this is to fulfill in John 19. He says that after he says they didn't break his legs. What does John say? This was happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The story of the lamb would be fulfilled in Jesus. No bone. And it's kind of like a little important thing because Psalms 34 mentions it. And it's echoing this prophetical meaning of Jesus being the lamb. In Psalms 34, 20, it says he protects all of his bones and not one of them will be broken. To the very last detail, Jesus is the spotless, perfect, without blemish, no bone broken lamb of God that John the Baptist said, here he is, behold him. Can you behold him today? Can you behold, as we read Psalm 22 this week, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's Psalm 21.1, but he's pointing to the whole psalm. That whole song, you know how a song gets started? That little phrase gets started in your head? That's what Jesus was doing, crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When you heard that cry, the, the, the Hebrews, the people of Israel who had their songs all memorized, the psalms in their heart, That melody just went through their head. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And all the way through the Psalms to my hands and feet being pierced. Here he is on the cross. Oh my gosh. Some people seeing it. But a lot of people not seeing it. Blind. The people who said they saw were blind. But the centurion who was blind and said he couldn't see said, this truly was the Son of God. All my bones are on display, Psalm twenty-two, seventeen. People stare and gloat over me, a public humiliating death of a withered, 
body, his bones sticking out, but not one of them broken. What does he look down upon? Verse 18, they divided my garments among them and they cast lots for my garment. His robe of righteousness they're casting lots for, they took and they divided amongst themselves so that he could give you his robe of righteousness so that the Lamb of God could give you his righteousness in place of your debt for you and your family and your household for the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world and he will take away yours today. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. Jesus was that lamb. Behold the lamb. A lot of people say, I don't believe I have a debt, and I don't care about any of this. So what? And so what, Bobby? But for the believer, what this means for our life is, Our sins are forgiven, and our only hope is in the Lamb. The hope isn't in any kind of um, political outcome. It's not in any kind of outcome of any kind of racial war. There's wars and rumors of wars, and there always be. What those rumors of wars means is racial wars. There will always be these things in the world. There will be needs in the world, and those needs are not met by the power of man through political means, through economical means, through psychological needs. These things can help relieve, but the only ultimate answer to the needs is for your sin and my sin to be dealt with by the blood of the Lamb and for the judgment that is rightfully due us to pass over us when he sees that blood applied to our heart. Has the blood been applied? Are you applying it? Or are you trusting in chariots and strong horses? Because any time you are, the Spirit of God moves elsewhere. And He moves elsewhere from nations. And it's the unique thing about Christianity. Every time Christianity in any part of the world has gotten embedded with power, the Holy Spirit moves and goes somewhere else. Because He's not embedded with the power of man. He's embedded with His supernatural power from on high that will dwell in a place where they will trust in Him. And him alone. And today, we are a people, a small people, a maybe insignificant people to the world. But we put our only hope, and here at Grace Harvest Church, our only hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And what that means is the debt has been paid. I believe I have a debt and I can't pay it back myself. And my only hope is in the Lamb to pay it for me. Let us worship this lamb. Let us enjoy this lamb. That's what it means. We can enjoy the Father again. We can enjoy the promised land. Let us worship the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Let us worship him when all else gives way and gives sway. Let us worship him when the pharaohs of today struggle for their own Political power and the plagues of disease and death are around us. And racial, racial prejudice rules in the heart of sinful men. Let us worship the Lamb. He's won the victory. He's paid for all of our sins and debts.
Let us worship the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Righteous One. Let us worship Him and remember that Passover. There's no, there's no lamb sacrificed anymore. The ultimate lamb has been sacrificed, and the sin that blood and goats could not take away, Jesus has completely taken away forever. And His body was a body that God desired, and it was His blood alone that would forgive us, and that is our only hope. So Jesus, when you were at that last Passover, and you retold the story with its ultimate foundation and truth, being that you did not ultimately desire the body of an innocent, fluffy, maybe not so smart lamb, but you, Jesus, your body, God the Father desired a perfect human body to be his. And that was you, Jesus, and you alone meet that debt. We thank you for it, and we give thanks for your body. Let us partake. And in like manner, he took the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's a new covenant. Here's the covenant we live under. The fulfillment of all the covenants point to the Lamb, the firstborn, one and only, precious Son of God. And when we do this, remember, we remember his death and that he was the substitutionary sacrifice in our place until he returns again. Let us give thanks and partake of the cup. Let us worship him.